0: This episode is sponsored by Enriched Superfoods. Enriched is my go-to store for the most powerful, most pure superfoods on the plain. They've got all the good stuff from maca to matcha, from shilajit to powdered greens. But you know what I love the most? I love the mushrooms. Now, I know what most of you are thinking, get on with the show, right? But I know what else you're thinking. You're thinking, how can I get better at strangling people? Us jiu guys, we're all the same. We want to be better. We want to be badder. Well, being better requires two things, learning more stuff and being able to execute more stuff. And Enriched has got you covered with what I'm calling the White Basement Jiu-Jitsu Super Stack. First is Lion's Mane Mushroom to supercharge memory, focus and clarity, and even better, give a neurotrophic boost literally helping you grow new jujitsu brain cells. Now, a jiu-jitsu super brain is all well and good, but if you can't execute on the mat, then it don't mean jack. That's why the second half of the super stack is the legendary Cordyceps CS4 Mushroom Extract, scientifically proven to offer heroic levels of stamina and energy, as well as improved lung function, actually helping you breathe better while you stop other people from breathing at all, go to enriched.co. That's e-n-r-i-c-h-d.co, and use the promo code White Basement Pod for a 10% discount across the whole site. Want to get more taps in more rounds and more respect from more people? Then get super stacked. Go to enriched.co and use the promo code White Basement Pod.
1: I mean, at this at this point, bear in mind, like. I wasn't, a very, um, I wasn't really very well thought out with my strategy of where I was going in life. I was just a teenager who was just completely absorbed in martial art. Like, didn't really have any clear goal. And then I started doing boxing. And then the, the coach, the Chinese kickboxing coach, well, the, the Shaolin guy, I would call him the Shaolin guy who also taught Chinese kickboxing, he said to me seeing as you like all this training seeing as you you know this is this is what you want to do why don't you just go to China why don't you go to the you know to Shaolin and train full-time and me as a young kid I had this vision in my head of like being a Shaolin monk and uh I thought it would be like you see in the movies you know
0: guest today is John Hickey, boxer, kickboxer, Thai boxer, founder and coach at MMA Dojo in East Finchley, London, a new MMA club that opened this year, 2022. Welcome to the podcast, John.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Um, So look, um, I, I i just scribbled something down before we came we we literally we never met you know i wasn't i wasn't really even aware uh, of you yeah. and i came across your um instagram post which i think was probably um i don't know maybe a week a week ago or so and you had a you had a video on there uh talking about um fight specific training um n- so not necessarily um doing movements that replicate your fighting art, but doing the correct um, intensity and interval length that simulates the rounds that you would fight. So, right. so you know, I'm a, I'm a jiu-jitsu guy. So at, at master's level, we just have one five-minute round is in a fight. Mm. So on that basis, I should be doing a five-minute um, or maybe five-and-a-half-minute high-intensity um, high intensity, um exercise periods that simulate what i get in a fight rather than going for a five mile run you know at low intensity for an hour that kind of thing yeah so i so i i i listened to that um to that uh instagram post and 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 that really kind of resonated with me because i've been trying to do like a real lazy version of that for about the last four or five years i've got just just around the corner from where i live there's a little hill yeah, and it takes me 30 seconds to I say hill sprints, it's more of a hill run, you know, I'm I'm a bit old now, but it takes me 30 seconds to run up and a minute and a half to walk down. So I would sprint up, walk down, sprint up, walk down. And I'll do that for maybe three to six or seven rounds. So that gives me sort of six minutes to 10 minutes or so of high intensity recovering while I'm walking down high intensity. And, and, and that's my lazy version, I think, of what of what you've been talking about. So, so that's 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 what I wanted to kind of drill into today. But I think maybe it's uh, it'll be nice to start off with your journey into martial arts training, getting to where you are now, because right. that, that I, I looked at the website, and obviously that that current philosophy you have on training comes from your whole journey with training, with injuries, with fighting, with rehab. So I, I don't know exactly where you want to start, but whatever, whatever would be the beginning, start at the beginning.
1: Uh, the beginning of my martial art yeah. journey. Um, well, it kind of had a false start when I was really young. So the first time I ever did martial art, I was 10 years old. And it was in a local Kung Fu school, which isn't even there now. So that was over in in East London, in an old church hall. And I'd wanted to do some martial art because my granddad had done it. So my granddad was a, a judo black belt. And he was dead by the time that I was four so I never really learned anything from him but I always knew that he was into judo and he had a samurai sword in his house he was into kendo as well so he was a judo master and a kendo master so that influence was always there and then when I was 10 I said okay I want to go and do this and so we looked around the local area at the time there was no social media this is obviously this is the 90s so there's no Instagram. We just had to go out and look, and we found a kung fu school in in the local area. And I actually only stayed there for about a year. And to be honest, like looking back on it, I know that that was a really badly run school. It was just like a ter- terribly run school. But they did teach me something. And you know, maybe even though it was bad martial art training, it wasn't very efficient. It wasn't very good. It was it was better than nothing. They kind of did teach me some stances, they got me to stretch a little bit, they taught me to punch a little bit, but not not very well. And then at the age of 11, then I started doing taekwondo in my school. So we had a taekwondo coach come in and he would only come in twice a week. So all this training at that time, it's all like very sort of basic stuff and they're not really teaching us anything proper. There wasn't any sparring there wasn't really any focused pad work. It would just be teaching you some very basic stuff, some flexibility, uh, some balance, some, some basic kicks, but not, not very good. But still, was a good experience. And especially the taekwondo coach that I had. It was a guy named Mr. Codner, and I don't know if he still coaches. I've heard that he's still involved in taekwondo. So it was just positive energy that they gave me like just positive messages and discipline. And it was only a couple of times a week, but I was young. I was was like, what, 10, 11. So that was kind of, that was like the the full start because very quickly, I actually actually gave up. Um, At the age of about 13, that was when when things weren't going so well for me in life. for some reason i had become completely despondent and and dropped out of school and uh didn't really work that hard in school my homework wasn't getting done and i was just hanging around with all the wrong crowd and doing a lot of drugs very young and um so i dropped out of school at 14 and that from the age of about 14 all the way to 17 that that was three years of nothing really good happening you know no martial art training, just in the wrong place at the wrong time, a lot of, a lot of uh, drug use. And um, the only good thing that really happened during that period was that I was doing construction work. So that kind of built up my body a little bit because I dropped out of school at 14 and was just a very mischievous kid and I wanted money. And my, my sister had a friend whose boyfriend was a, a landscape gardener and so this must have been about the year 2000 2001 and and he wanted a laborer now me being 14 years old and I don't know anything it was great for him because I was just about strong enough that I could labor but not very smart so he could pay me like 25 pounds a day and at 2001 a 14 year old kid like getting 25 pounds a day and my other friends they're in school still, and i'm I'm like one of the bad boys I'm doing drugs, I'm working on a construction site. That was the only good thing that happened, but other than that it was it was not good and it wasn't it wasn't the way that someone should spend their teenage years so so yeah, I went down a very bad path for a few years, and uh that kind of came to a head at some point i I must have hit rock bottom as a teenager and just hanging around in very shit places with people who, you know, have no aspirations. And I started to see people that were older than me, you know, 25, 30, even older than that, who were drug addicts. Because, of course, if you're 14 and you you don't go to school, who do you hang around with? There's no one to hang around with except for the other kids who don't go to school. And so why are they not going to school? It's because they're all fucked up. And their families are fucked up. And I think psychologists, they they have a a term for this phenomenon. They call it downward drift. When When you lose control of things and you let bad habits take over, you start to downward drift. You go hanging around with worse people in worse places. And so by the age of about 16, I'd spent a lot of time in places that just weren't good with people that had no goals. And no life and just addicted to drugs. And even though I had completely rebelled against everything, against authority, school, you know, parents, even the law, I still have my my emotions, right? And I think emotions are a good guide sometimes. And when I got to that place, I looked around and I thought, this is not a good place to be. You know, this isn't where I wanna be. I wanna change. I want to change my life. I want to do something good. But I was a very lost young teenager and didn't really know what to do. And my brother was saying, join the army because he was in the army. So I kind of came close to, to doing that because I was always in, in, I was in the army cadets when I was when I was much younger. But it didn't seem right to me. It didn't seem right to me. And the only other positive thing I could think of was martial art. I said, okay, I'm going to do that again. Because I remembered the, the Kung Fu training that I'd had, even though it was only a couple of times a week, there was some positivity there. And I also remember the Taekwondo training and the positivity and the good emotions. I said, okay, I'm going to go and do that again. And this was when it really started. You know, this was the second start, but it was the real start because now I had such a strong drive. I wanted to find peace. I wanted to find positivity. I wanted to find something good. And... Um, so I went to, I went to Wanstead Leisure Center, because again, at this time, this is about 2004, I think must have been around that time. Still, you don't have Instagram, you don't have any of that stuff then. So I went to Did Leisure Center, they got all these posters on the, the wall, like judo, taekwondo, jujitsu, and all this kind of stuff. So I was trying all of them. And, um, and then I went in there one day, and there was this, uh, this Chinese guy doing Chinese kickboxing, and I'd never witnessed people do high kicks in my life. So this guy was doing backflips and high kicks and the guys in there were like really explosive. And that, that really captured my attention. And I started doing that with them. And um, very quickly, I, I became obsessed with it. Now that school, they were, they were actually a Shaolin Kung Fu school. I don't, have, have you seen Shaolin Kung Fu before? Yes, yeah, yeah. They were doing Shaolin Kung Fu. So they had the shaved heads and all the orange robes and all that kind of stuff. But they also taught Chinese kickboxing. And they were also into Zen, Zen Buddhism and all that sort of stuff. So, so I would train with them. Very quickly, I became obsessed with that, with the, the meditation culture. I started meditating a lot more. Um, I started to stretch every day. And I didn't really look back. Like It just became a lifestyle for me really quickly. I had I became totally obsessed with it because the Shaolin culture, right? The, the culture of Shaolin is about trying to find enlightenment through martial art. So for them, martial art is like a it's like a moving meditation. So I was obsessed with that kind of Shaolin culture. And I actually shaved my head. I, I went completely mad. Like all the all the kids that I'd been doing drugs with, like I've just cut all of them out. And every, I didn't even speak to my friends anymore. I didn't have many friends. Everyone thought I'd gone mad. They thought I was weird. They just knew me as that crazy martial art guy. So I shaved my head. I would meditate every day. And um, I was still, I was living with my father at that point, And I would still do construction work sometimes. So I would just wake up in the morning, meditate. I would go to the, the Kung Fu school. And at the same time, also started to do boxing as well. I mean, at this, at this point, bear in mind, like, I, wasn't a very, um, I wasn't really very well thought out with my strategy of where I was going in life. I was just a teenager who was just completely absorbed in martial art, like, didn't really have any clear goal. And then I started doing boxing. And then the, the coach, the Chinese kickboxing coach, well, the, the Shaolin guy, I would call him the Shaolin guy who also taught Chinese kickboxing. He said to me, seeing as you like all this training, seeing as you, you know, this is, this is what you want to do, why don't you just go to China? Why don't you go to the, you know, to Shaolin and train full time? And me as a young kid, I had this vision in my head of like being a Shaolin monk. And, uh, I thought it would be like you see in the movies, you know, like in the mountains and spiritual and training and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I was completely off my head at this point. But bear in mind, this is a teenager who's literally from the age of like, say, about 12 to, you know, late 16, had been completely off the rails, like on drugs. And now has just gone completely insane for martial art. So it's good, although there's no real like goal or clear path or really any adult really giving me any direction, it was good. It was a good thing to be lost in, you know? And so my parents were very happy that, that I had changed and gone on this path, even though it's almost equally as insane as the previous path, they were quite happy and I don't think they knew what to do because my parents, they couldn't, they couldn't handle me. Before, they, they didn't know what to do. Um, but back in those days, China was not a developed country like it is now. It was very cheap to go there and to live there was very cheap. So they, they said, well, okay, fine. If you want to go, go. And, um, and that's how I ended up in China. And, and <laughs> so, so how, how old were you when you went? I was 18 when I got there.
0: And, and so did, did you – because it, it always kind of fascinates me, you know, when people take that – I mean, it's a big jump, right? Go yeah. halfway around the world, you're 18, on your own, go train full-time somewhere. Yeah. So, so did did the school that you were at here, did they sort of make all the connections for you so you had somebody there to to meet up with when you got there?
1: Yeah, the coach that I was training with, he, he had uh, connections there that – it was a school, it was a martial art training school that they sent me to. So I remember on the plane, I actually remembered that actually, I don't really know where I'm going. Like, I'm just gonna meet someone at the airport. I don't really know where it is. Like I know it's Shaolin, then I'm gonna get on the bus so they'll take me there but they hadn't really told me exactly where it was. And again, they didn't have a website. There was nothing. I had no idea. I mean, I had seen pictures of Shaolin and I had read blogs that people had written from what it would be like. And I was trying to prepare myself before I went. I was doing all this training and I imagined it would be like something out of a Kung Fu movie. Um, you know, very much like sort of natural environment and, you know, everyone there would be like, very humble and like like a like like a kung fu movie like you envision it like that
0: and i'm getting the sense that it wasn't like that
1: no it wasn't (laughs) quite like that no (laughs) so 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 you get off the plane (laughs) well okay so i got off the plane and there was someone there with my with my thing like with a, a card with my name and i met them and they spoke broken english I had been trying to pick up Chinese before I went there for, for a few weeks before I went there. So I kind of knew how to say hello and thank you and that sort of stuff. And they introduced me to a group of French martial artists who were also going to school where I was going to, and they had been there before. So they told me a little bit about it in Beijing. And um, we, stayed, we stayed in a hotel in Beijing for a day because my baggage hadn't arrived. So so we stayed in Beijing, and um, I remember we actually stayed very close to the Beijing Sport University, and uh, we, we visited there. We saw some really good athletes there. And then we took the train from Beijing to Henan, and then that's quite a long train journey. That was about 10 hours on the train. It's not 10 hours now because they have fast trains, but it was, it was 10 hours then. And uh, so then, yeah, then we had to take a bus from a place called Zhengzhou. Zhengzhou is like the central, it's in the middle, smack bang in the middle of China. And we had to take a bus from there to get to Shaolin. And the bus is quite long, a couple of hours. When we get close, that's when I'm seeing like huge mountains, and you know, in, this in is the like mist. the birthplace of. Kong. It literally is yeah, like that. Like amazing. Huge mountains and mist, literally mist. And just, I've never seen mountains like that because that time I'd been to France and Spain and that's about it, you know? Never been anywhere like this. Like, yeah, that was amazing going in there. So all these mountains and pagodas and things like that. And then when we got to the actual Kung Fu training base, it was, so I was in, I was in a, a school, And they were going to teach me Chinese kickboxing. But it was a Kung Fu school. And they have... These Kung Fu schools in China, or or I say martial arts schools in China, the way they work is they're actually like schools. So the kids go, they're really young, and they actually have education. And they train. The education is basic. And some of them, if they do better at the education, they might go more down that route. But for most of them, it's basic education and then full-time martial art. So the youngest kids there are about five and then they go there all the way till about 18. So when we got there, the place was in the middle of the mountains. So that part of it was nice. But it was like an army base. It looked like an army base. It didn't look like what you would expect because it wasn't the Shaolin Temple. It was just a Kung Fu training school or martial arts training school. So we went in there and I remember coming on on this bus and it was like, it was still like in sort of mountainous terrain. So it's like really uneven. The most uneven bumpy terrain and strange like sort of buildings like I'd not seen before. And you go in there and I remember seeing lots of bags hanging up from trees. There are bags hanging from trees. And I was exhausted at this point because we have been traveling for days and I'm jet lagged. I just remember bags hanging from trees and like very sandy everywhere and they had made bags out of tires that you would kick as well. And they had old rusty training equipment. So there was no modern stuff in there. There was no like nice things. All the training was outside. So they had the bags hanging from trees and literally sandbags, like bags of old sand or old bags of sand hanging from trees. Um, And then where the students live was kind of like barracks. It was like army barracks. And they had a cook house. And that's where you would go to get your food. So the first day I got there, they, they fed us, they fed us some bread and some vegetables. And, and then, uh, I remember them showing me to a room, which is just like a concrete room, it literally just looks like a bare concrete room with like a, a plank kind of like a wooden plank with a very thin blanket on it. So it wasn't very comfortable. And they said training will start tomorrow and. So I just put my stuff down, I'm exhausted, and I went to sleep. And it's, it was so hot there, like 40 degrees at this time. And so I'm sitting there in my room, I'm just, I couldn't really sleep the whole night. And what I hadn't realized was around the school, there are speakers. There are huge speakers everywhere. And the thing about those martial arts schools is they're not like Shaolin Temple spiritual martial arts stuff. They're their schools at the time they were were made to train kids that for some reason couldn't do normal education. They would end up going into the army or they would go into security or something like that. And of course, it's like very nationalistic communist structure. So we had these huge speakers everywhere. I didn't know what they were gonna be for, but, so I woke up, I got woken up at five in the morning by the loudspeakers very loud communist marching songs like the kind of thing you would you would expect to hear like you know in like russian communist days really loud and then i I realized this is what they wake you up every morning with so that was um that was different you know that was kind of different
0: different from an alarm clock
1: yeah it was different yeah and And you say
0: that was five in the morning
1: five a.m yeah so
0: that was every day at five. Every day, yeah. Seven days a week.
1: Seven days a week, yeah. In fact, so Sun no Sunday, Sunday it wouldn't be. So six days a week.
0: We we're gonna say Sunday was four o'clock.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, su- Sunday Sunday it wouldn't go off, but um, it would go off later because the the speakers also went off when it was time for you to eat. So the speakers would go off. They'd play a song when it's time for you to wake up. When it's time for you to go to bed, when it's time for you to sleep, when it's time for you to eat, everything is dictated to you like that. And then the kids line up. So it was pretty much like military-style training. So the speakers go off, the kids all run out, they line up. And um, me being a foreigner, they were a lot more lax with me. Um, But what I saw there to the kids, I mean, if the kids didn't line up properly, they would beat them up, like actually beat them up, or throw a rock at their head or hit them around the head with a stick or something. And so I realized very quickly that if I didn't make it on time, nothing would happen to me. But I wanted to make it on time every day. Cause I felt like it's not fair. These kids, you know, what they're going through. And um so I actually had a one-on-one coach. I had a one-on-one coach and um my coach in England had told me that this guy was like a really good coach, which wasn't really true he wasn't so he was supposed to teach me chinese kickboxing Now most people in china you think they're quite short right that's not really true now but generally people think they're they're tall they're they're short this guy was really tall and he's built like a brick shit house and i think he was about 18 at the time he'd been living in this place for like 10 years so he's a, a very strong and tough guy and I remember we we, he couldn't really speak English that well, so he could speak a little bit and I'm kind of trying to learn Chinese and he's trying to teach like he's trying to teach me a bit and I'm trying to teach him a bit of English. So he would take me out to train uh, six hours a day, so it'd be two hours in the morning and then we would, in fact, no, it was five in the morning, you train for an hour, then you rest, have breakfast and then about an hour later, you train for two hours. Then you have lunch, and then you do two hours in in the uh, about two p.m. You do two more hours. Then you rest, have some dinner, and then there was there was an hourly an hour later.
0: Six days a week.
1: Six days a week, yeah. It was like that. Six days a week, and um, a lot of the training that they were doing with me was stuff that I'd done with the, the coach previously. So it was a lot of basic training, like the those Chinese martial arts schools. It doesn't matter if you're going to go into the performance martial art or if you were going to go down the fight route, they would put you through the same basic training. So basic training would just be a lot of body weight strength training. It would be a lot of flexibility. It would be a lot of holding your leg in the air, putting your leg on the wall. Um, it would be a lot of running up hills because the whole place was mountains and hills. So it'd take us running out into mountains a lot. And, um, if you were going to go down the fight stuff, then it would be bag work and pad work. And they would, they would want you to spar and do drills and all that sort of stuff. And then, um, if you're going down the performance route, then you would do the forms and the flips and all that sort of stuff. So, so I had expressed before going there that I wanted to do the fight stuff. So they had me kicking bags a lot and, uh, and, uh, you know, hitting pads and all that sort of stuff. But it wasn't like looking back on it, it wasn't very technical. I mean, I coach, I coach people a lot more technique. They didn't teach me that much technique on strategy. They just felt like get me training really hard every day and and beat the shit out of me, like literally. So th- this is one thing that I, I haven't talked about, right? It's like the violence of the place. So these people, they, they didn't have a very good idea of sparring. Like they just they 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 just they they would fight. That's all they had. And so this coach, like his way of teaching me, he, I mean the the first time that I sparred with him, I mean I didn't really know what it would be like. So we didn't have any shin guards. He just put on the glove and said, "Okay, we we spar." And the guy just beat the shit out of me. Like I can remember it, like because all the other kids would train in their class, and he'd teach me one on one, and um. We were in a little training ground, sort of behind the area where I lived. And, um, you know, it's like sand and sort of mud floor and the bags hanging from the trees. And it's hot, but the trees kind of cover the sun. And yeah, like we had no shin guards. And I just can remember the kicks just thundering into my legs, like just the stinging and the pain. And I can remember just... Because I've been boxing in the UK, so I've done boxing, sparring, so I kind of was a bit used to taking hits, but I'd never been kicked like that in my life. So I kept my hands up. I didn't really know how to defend kicks. No one taught me anything. I just remember seeing his legs, these huge legs, these huge quadriceps, and I'm just seeing his feet move in the sand, and you just see the foot come off the ground, and then, boom, it just digs you. And it just shocks, like, go go through your whole body. and. That was that was how he wanted to teach me. It was it so. Was, how
0: how far into the training was that the first time when you sparred? How, how long had you been there? It was there? A couple of weeks, I think. All oh, right, so pretty pretty quick.
1: It was a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean they'd had me on the bag and the pad, so they knew I could kind of kick and punch a little bit, but not very well, not that well, you know. And um, that was that was it. That was just how they taught me. But then I saw how they did it with the kids, and they did the same thing with them. The whole place was was. You know, it was the school of hard knocks. So
0: And, and so you, you did you stay in that place for three years or you did you move to different
1: No, so I stayed there for three months in that school and then I came back to the UK because I'd only planned to stay there for three months. Right. I stayed there for three months and then when I got back to UK I didn't really know what to do. I carried on training back at the
0: the same
1: club the the well okay so that club I actually left that club I actually left them and the reason I had left them is because so the whole thing for me going to China at that point like it was it was kind of like I I wanted to be a monk I wanted to be a Shaolin monk I wanted to be like a Zen Buddhist monk and when I got to the school I realised okay the school's like this sort of you know militant army training stuff cool um and then, then I, w- I went to the Shaolin Temple. I traveled to the Shaolin Temple and I spent some time there. And I spoke to a lot of people there and I was very like, disappointed with what I saw there because I thought it was literally like a real Buddhist temple where if you dedicated your life to martial art and Zen, you could become a monk. Not that that would be a good idea and not that I would want to do that now. <laughs> there's no way. Even if it was like that, there's no way I would want to do that now. But when I was 18, I was just crazy, right? So, so I wanted to do that. And I was very disappointed when I found out that's not really what the Shaolin Temple is. And I don't think it is even now. You know, the Shaolin Temple is a place that looks like a Buddhist temple. And they do practice Kung Fu. But I don't believe they're real monks. It's like they, it's, it's kind of like a, a tourist attraction. Yeah, and it, more, makes yeah. it makes a lot of money. It makes a lot of money. Even people in China, they, they still believe it's what I believed it was. And they go there every year and they give money and they donate money to the monks. And my understanding was that the communists destroyed Shaolin. The actual culture of Shaolin, they destroyed that in the Cultural Revolution, like under Mao. They completely killed that off. And then in the 80s, the government, the, the communist party were looking for ways to rejuvenate the country and one place of one way to do that is to invest in the culture and make the people feel happy about their, you know, so things like Shaolin temple were very useful for them to do that. They could build it up and they could say that, you know, this is our culture, this is our heritage. So they did it only for that reason and they put money into it. And even now Chinese, Chinese communist party put a lot of money into the Shaolin temple because it's like a kind of a cultural relic and it makes the people feel proud and they, you know, they come together. And so it's, it, it's not exactly what people think it is um although they do they are very good at kung fu and maybe some of them are into zen as well so i was really disappointed with that um and so yeah i actually left i left the kung fu school that i was training in and the martial art thing for me it was like well what am i going to do with it now and i started to realize that there's there's combat sport there's fighting and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can do that. Like, maybe I can give that a go. And so I started to train in a lot of places in the UK. Um, I trained in, in the KO gym a little bit. I went to another place called Shaolin Temple UK, which were also affiliated with Shaolin Temple, but they were more focused on the combat side. So I trained with them a little bit. And um, I don't think at that time I could fully get used to the UK again having been in China and seen beautiful mountains and sunshine and 40 degree heat and training like every day. I I tried to do the same thing, doing construction work and my parents actually, they sent me to a Chinese school, Chinese language school. Cause when I came back, I had picked up the language. So they said, you should go back and just keep learning the language. Why not? Right. Um, And so eventually I ended up going back there. I said, I'm going to go back. But one guy that I had met in London also wanted to go back there. And he went back there. He actually had gone back there when I came back to the UK and he came to my, my, my flat. We spoke about it. I told him what it would be like and he went out there. So he'd been there for, when I went back there a second time, he'd been there for a whole year. And this guy was much smarter than me. Just much smarter, you know, like socially, mentally, much more like had his head screwed on. And he realized that you could actually, you could actually rent apartments in that area. You could live a lot better. If you wanted to train martial art every day, you could, but you didn't have to live in that place. Right. Cause I didn't tell you how shit that place actually was. Like, I mean, it was, you, you, you would shit in a hole in the ground, like that stank, like basically like a cesspit. And it's freezing cold in winter. It's, very hot in summer, filthy, you know, it's an absolute shithole. That's the Kung Fu school. And you don't eat good when you live there. And you get woken up 5 a.m. by this fucking communist marching song. (laughs) So the Kung Fu training side of it was really good. And I have some really beautiful memories of like training, the sun going down over the mountains and all that, like some really nice parts of it. But the other side of it wasn't so good and so he realized that like you can actually rent apartments in you know and at that time China was still really like it was a developing country i mean they still had horse and carts so it was cheap it didn't cost a lot of money and um so i so i went back there and and we we stayed in the same area and we trained kung fu and well not kung fu i trained chinese kickboxing my friend was training kung fu and um i didn't really I didn't really know how it, how it would turn this into Korea, a career. I just had an idea that I wanted to fight. And um, I got the sense that these, these Chinese martial arts schools wouldn't really ever teach me that well. And so eventually I went to Beijing. I went to Beijing because I realized I could get a job there. because so I had actually met someone in Beijing and they had they invited me to their house and I just kind of got to know Beijing. So uh, I realized I could get a job there. I could teach English, like it's really easy because there wasn't that many foreigners there that could speak Chinese. And if you could speak English, they'll just give you a job. So I figured, okay, like, I mean, I was 20 years old or in fact, no, I was, I was 19 at the time. And so in the UK, you know, I wasn't gonna be able to live this life. I wasn't gonna be able to move out of my parents' house and have a flat of my own and train martial art every day. Whereas in China I could, so in Beijing, I realized, okay, I can get a job. And when I went to Beijing, I was still training martial art just like I had done there, but now it was a normal life again. It wasn't like living in that, that it was normal life now. It was like I've got a job and I found a martial art place to train, an MMA place run by a French guy, a French guy called Lawrence. And Lawrence, I think he had he'd been um, a taekwondo athlete he was a really good striker and he had a really good knowledge of grappling. And this is the first guy who taught me any ground skills or any wrestling. And he was just such a good coach. Like he was, he was a really smart guy. actually. He was doing a PhD. If I'm not mistaken, I think he was doing a PhD in, in China, but he might've been like a joint course, but he was a really smart guy. And so I would train with Lawrence and, um, and uh, yeah, he taught me a lot of things. He had some really like, because he was a kind of an intelligent kind of person, not just like a meathead, like the people in those martial arts schools. He actually was one of the first people to introduce ideas about training smart, you know, and he actually had better cardio than me. And this is one thing that really astounded me was like he used to spar and not get tired and I would actually get tired quicker than him. And I was doing these long runs every morning and he wasn't. And so that really started to like strike a chord of me like how is this this guy deadlifts and he does intense cardio and I'm doing the old school stuff I'm running up fucking like hills all the time you know <laughs> and he's not tired when I'm getting tired that was that was the time I really started to figure out some stuff you know um but at that time still i wasn't really 100 percent sure how i would you know make a make a career out of it or anything and um i was still teaching english and training there and he actually gave me a job as an assistant coach so I'm, i'm i'm 20 years old now and i'm holding pads for people and trying to you know i'm learning stuff about coaching and then i also got a job in a local gym as well so i had three jobs i was in there i taught in a local gym and i also did some english teaching on the side and um and then I started to hear a lot about Muay Thai. And I went to a place in Beijing where there was, there was a Filipino Muay Thai champion called Vince. Um, Vince actually, he coached some UFC fighters. I don't know if you know about Leach. Do you know? Yeah. So yeah. he actually coached, he was Leach's striking coach. Okay. And Leach was training with him. So I trained with Vince and there was a couple of Thai Muay Thai fighters from Thailand. And so I started training with them and that was this was the time where I actually think I really started to learn some proper fighting skills. Because in Chinese kickboxing, the, the school there, they just beat the shit out of me and they made me tough and they made me flexible. Yes. And I knew how to punch and kick and all that stuff. But I didn't really know about how to fight. I didn't understand about strategies and intricate defense and all that kind of stuff. So when I got to Beijing, that's when these guys, Lawrence and... You know Vince and some of the ties in that gym. They were actually starting to teach me some proper stuff now, and the sparring was a bit better, like just normal sparring. Um, and and yeah, I had I had a couple of amateur fights there, so that was the time where I started to really think, like maybe I can be a fighter. You know, maybe I can actually make some money out of this. So,
0: and and so that sec- that was the second trip back where you were, went to Beijing.
1: Yeah, but that was three years.
0: That was the three years. That was three stint. years. Yeah.
1: yeah. And during that time, I'd had a normal, that was a normal life in Beijing. And I really needed that, you know, I really needed it because my teenage years were fucking insane. Mm. You know, I dropped out of school, been on drugs for years. Then going in that crazy sort of like monk mode, like that was quite crazy as well. And I hadn't been very sociable, You know, I'd just been like a monk, like just crazy, by myself, didn't really socialize very much. When I got to Beijing, I still wanted to do this martial art, but I realized, like, you know, I like people. I wanna socialize with people. And I had a lot of friends and we we had a really good time, you know. I think that was the time that I actually developed and became a, a normal person. That was when I really learned how to talk to people and how to communicate with people. You know, so that was, it was a really good time for me. Like the martial arts stuff was happening, but I'm also developing as a normal person. Mm. And, you know, that was, that that was, that was very important for me because I don't think I would have been able to actually b- be who I am now and coach people and communicate with people. And a lot of that did come through martial art, really, you know, because yeah. it was the martial art that made me become positive and driven. Yes you know but i was still very like very much one sided like you know and so, and
0: so that was a, that three year sort of uh, um chapter yeah why what, had, what did you plan to do three years or no you just sort of came to the point where you thought i should go back to the uk for a bit
1: well, I, I didn't go back to uk there oh, okay. so so after that i went to thailand right so i never planned to come back to the uk okay I was just like, fuck the UK, I'm done. I'm going back to China, that's going to be my life. And of course, just being young and stupid, I didn't really figure out that that wouldn't really work because China doesn't have an immigration policy. They didn't then, they still don't now. But, you know, at the time I was young and didn't really know that. So, so yeah, three years in Beijing. And, you know, at the end of it, I'm sort of starting to... um, in fact, it was a three years in Beijing. So it was when I went back there, because originally the second time I went back to China, it was in Henan first, training and living in the apartment, and then Beijing later. So it was two years in Beijing, actually, now I think of it. And yeah, so I wanted to be a fighter at that point. I thought maybe I can make this my career. I can make money. And the, the guy, Vince, that I was training with, <clears throat> he recommended I go to Thailand and set me up with a gym there. So... I got some money together, and I went to train in Thailand for six months. And I think in that six-month period, I had four fights. So it was three in Thailand, and one, they flew me back to China. And um, that also was that was a really tough experience, but also a great experience. That was, uh, yeah, it was very, very tough, but i'm so grateful to have had that you know
0: and is that still like a five six days a week training when you were in thailand
1: the the camps in thailand yeah they were six days a week but they were nothing like the camps in china totally different a lot happier there yeah thai culture is so different to chinese culture i mean i've
0: been i've been i think i've been three times to thailand i haven't been to china but yeah thai, thai culture is great
1: yeah i mean i remember when i got to the, the camp in thailand and i had my sunglasses and i'd just flown from beijing so it wasn't far and i got there and there was there was a bunch of american guys sitting on the, the table and uh they were actually complaining about like how hard it was for them to adjust and i thought man you don't know You don't know, like, this place is not that hard. Like, if you'd been in a Chinese camp, I thought it was heaven. Like, for me, it was perfect. They gave me a nice room with an air conditioner. The food was nice. Like, you come out your thing and there's fried chicken on the streets and mangoes. And the training there was, it was still old school. It wasn't scientific. They do the same stuff. They go running for a long time. They run 10 kilometers every morning. They skip, they shadow, they hit the pads but it was just cool. Like the people there were cool. You know, you could, you could talk with your trainers. They would like, they spoke English and I made a real effort to learn Thai while I was there. But we just had a much better time there than that Chinese martial arts school. And um, the sparring was good too. You know, we would would train. The training was pretty, pretty um, simple. It was the same shit every day. Like you'd wake up, run 10K, you'd skip, You'd shadow box, you'd hit the pads, you'd hit the bags, and then you'd do 300 sit-ups, pull-ups, push-ups. That was the extent of their strength training. Push-ups, sit-ups, and pull-ups. So it wasn't very good strength training. But then in the evening, you'd do the same stuff, but then you would clinch at the end. And then Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you would spar boxing. So, you you kind of got strong because you would clinch every day. So I guess that's how they got stronger. They would they would clinch every day, and they would do this basic body weight strength training. And those kids that had been in there for like ten years or five years, they were incredibly strong. Even fifteen year old boys, you know, you clinch with them. They were, they were very strong.
0: Wow. Well, so it was working.
1: Well, I mean, I think that maximal strength can be developed by isometric contractions like if you have the intention to do a really strong isometric contraction you can develop maximal strength that way and so i'm assuming that when they're grappling sometimes to get out of positions they're gonna have to push really hard or they're gonna have to squeeze tight Mm. even if it's only for a couple of seconds But if you're doing that almost every day i mean over time i guess that's yeah, that's actually going to develop some considerable strength as well.
0: Yeah, because I think that kind of stuff it, it develops as well, like tendons, tendons and ligaments. You know, so it's not yeah. just the muscular strength, but it's the supporting, you know, infrastructure, if you like. Yeah. Because this this is something that's that that, that people always talk about with jujitsu is a black belt squeeze. Yeah. Like if you if you roll with someone that's been training you know for ten years or fifteen years or whatever. Yeah. When they squeeze you it's a different squeeze. Oh, yeah. It's like a bear. It's like a snake.
1: God, yeah. Even when they demonstrate things on you, you just feel it. Like, yeah. It's just... And I think that comes from squeezing over years. Yes.
0: Because it is almost isometric. A lot of the jiu-jitsu kind of finishing positions, you're already in the position. It's just get constricting, constricting, constricting. There's not a lot of movement in the last, you know, 10 seconds of finishing a submission yeah if it's a choke or whatever you everything is sunk in yeah and you're just squeezing it squeezing it squeezing it so i guess it plays to exactly that is that isometric kind of
1: yeah that must be how they got strong yeah you know and with regard to their um their endurance training so they would do a lot of this low intensity long duration stuff they would run 10 kilometers every day and then they would skip for 30 minutes which I obviously, as I spoke about in the, you know, the, the, the Instagram post, I don't think it works very well. But what they would also do is they would smash the pads and the bag like every day. And they had a ferocious tempo like these, these Thai kids that they've been in there since they were, they were like five. And that is one thing I just remember vividly from being in those Thai camps. And not all Thai camps are like this, right? Because it depends on the level of the Thai camps. But at this time, that gym, Khao Samrit, Rit, they were doing pretty well. Like, the, you know, they were, they, were doing, they were doing quite well on the local circuit in the Lumpini Stadium and the Raja Stadium. So they were some of the, the higher level guys. And um I switched off. They, they were some of the higher level guys in Thailand. And I just remember after seeing them, the ferocity of their pad work was, it was, it was just amazing, you know? What I'd seen in China in those those camps, they weren't like the good guys in China because China's high-level athletes also have that kind of style of training now. But what I'd seen in those Chinese martial arts schools there, I mean, it was... They were good on the pads, but they weren't like this because these guys were just letting rip with knees and elbows and kicks and punches for round after round. And they weren't getting tired, you know? And just, you could see these people were... They were, they were another level. Like, they were... These are people who have never done anything except fight since they were 5 years old. I mean, these are real warriors, you know. You can you can feel the energy of the place in their eyes, you know, when you go in there. Like these are killers. And I can remember I can remember when I got in there that I had this dream, right? Like they say dreams have meanings. I don't always believe that. I don't believe it, but sometimes I think dreams do have meanings. And I remember about three days after being in this camp, I, I got the sense like this place is something else, you know, like the energy of it is really something else. And I was overwhelmed by it. It was overwhelming, right? Like the ferocity of it. You just lay down in your bed, you wake up, and then again, pads, bam, 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 just crazy intensity. And bear in mind, Thai pad work, they actually kick you back quite hard because they don't really spar Muay Thai in Thai camps. Sometimes they do, but a lot of the time the pad work is the sparring. So the trainers, these are old Muay Thai fighters who, a lot of them have had two hundred fights, and they're old now. But if you've had two hundred fights, you don't—you're never going to be normal after that, right? You're always going to be very high condition. And so these are old Thai trainers. They've had all those fights. They've got the shin guards on, and they're beating the shit out of you with the pads to simulate. You know, that they're throwing push kicks at you. They're throwing round kicks at you. So it's very intense. And just being beside all those athletes. And yeah, about two days in there, I just I felt very overwhelmed by the ferocity and the intensity of it. And um, I had this dream. I was in my room and like an animal came into the room, like a ferocious gorilla, like and just stood in front of me and just roared like. And I got paralyzed. I can remember this dream so vividly, I'm paralyzed and I can't move. And I'm terrified like this gorilla is going to eat me. And this ferocity of it, right? Like, and I'm scared that the gorilla's going to kill me. And then all of a sudden I look down at myself and I see my hands and fur is growing on my hands. And there's fur growing on my legs. And then I stand up and, and then I'm the gorilla. And then I woke up and it was like, whoa, what a fucking weird dream. What the hell was that? But I think that's like, I was taking that ferocity from them and I started to develop it. And I started to get that. Killer instinct, you know Like when I'm on the pads, I'm here to kill, you know I'm here to fight, like this is professional This is shin on shin, this is kill or be killed Five rounds, elbows, knees, everything, you know And uh, that, that ferocity is, I think, something that If you train in Thailand and you experience that you, You're going to have it in your heart, you know You see people that when they have trained in Thailand They make the same noise, you know When they kick the bag It comes from there. You can't train in that environment and that doesn't get into you, you know, that energy. So it's a good thing if you can control it. You can, you know, you can't be too ferocious and not have like skills. You got to marry it with skills and have a bit of finesse, I think.
0: And how long did you train then in in Thailand on that? that, um... That
1: was six months in that time, six months altogether.
0: And, and then, f- and that was six months and four fights you had there well, yeah. in, that, in that six month period. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and what happened after that then?
1: So, after that, I started to run out of money. And because there you
0: weren't working in Thailand, no, that was I'm just on working. the savings from China.
1: Yeah, I had saved up money from China, and um, yeah, it, it wasn't too expensive. But if you don't have any money coming in, and you, I couldn't make that much money fighting Muay Thai. I wanted to make money. I wanted to be, you know, a professional fighter, but I figured out, well, it's going to take a while. So I need to figure out, like, I need to get a job somehow. Had I been as smart as I am now, then I would have just figured out, well, I just need to find a sponsor. Simple, but I was not that smart. I was a very dumb young guy. So, um, so I figured like, okay, if I go back to England and I sign up for a degree, to study sports science, cause I wanted to study sports science anyway. I'd always been interested in it. Then they'll give me funding. And then I could use that funding to be a fighter while I'm doing my degree. So that was the plan. And I came back to England and uh, you know I, I signed up for university. And uh, they, they told me you have to do a foundation course first, like basic biology and chemistry and all that stuff which I wasn't very happy about at the time, but now looking back in hindsight, it was very important because if you don't understand basic science, you wouldn't understand sports science. This is one thing that kind of frustrates me now. It's like it's sometimes so hard to explain things to people because they don't have basic biology or chemistry. It's hard to go into the deeper aspects of it. But anyway, so they, they gave me this foundation year. And um, my idea was to fight and train and... I tried to carry on the same kind of training intensity that I had done in those camps. At the same time, study for my my degree. And uh very quickly I became overstressed and overworked. And uh it, I think it was about a year after being back that I actually injured my spine. So it was it was a slip disk. And at the time the the doctors they they told me that you won't be able to fight again they said it's all over you know it's it's all finished so that was probably one of the hardest times ever because I was so depressed then you know I was only like 22 and uh you know the dream was over for me it was over and I was back in England and the weather wasn't good and it's just depressing you know really depressing and I was very lost and didn't know what to do and yeah, my mental state was really not very good. But luckily, because I was studying all that science stuff, I was able to to learn stuff about spinal rehab, and I put a lot of effort into that. And um, slowly I started to figure out how I could rehab the injury. And um, I actually had surgery. I had surgery on my spine. And... Um, I think it must have been about 24. Like I had kind of fully recovered because of the the stuff that I had learned. I figured out how it happened in the first place, figured out how the injury had happened and um, figured out how I could actually get stronger. Even after the operation, I was actually stronger than before. Like physically, the, the strength, I could deadlift more. I could squat more, more explosive, have better endurance. So it was kind of a blessing in disguise. was really a blessing in disguise that that happened
0: yeah i think a lot of times it's like that for people if you get as long as you know the injury is not so catastrophic that you can't recover from it yeah but but i think quite often where there's a a fairly major injury it forces you to um to kind of reassess everything and address all of the things that you overlook yeah you know and fill in all those little kind of gaps so yeah, as as long as you as long as you can take the the lesson from it and and learn from it, I think a, a lot of people have the same kind of uh, experience. I mean, I've I've had the same experience after having injuries that you kind of almost, although it's frustrating at the time, you're almost grateful that you had it, yeah, because you come out the other side with a new set of tools and a new understanding and a new insight and you know stuff that you can then just move forwards with.
1: Definitely, yeah. it's definitely a good thing in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's always hard for athletes when they get injured.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially yeah. like if it, you know, for me, I'm it's it's recreational for me. Yeah. Um, but but I mean, as much as its training is recreational for me, training is very much you know I've 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 always done something. I've always done either weights or cycling or martial arts or whatever since I was probably thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. And if I don't train. I, I'm not in a good mental state. It keeps me. It keeps me kind of balanced, and it keeps me grounded, and it keeps yeah. me able to sleep well and enjoy my food and have better relationships with people. You know, if I don't sure. train, if I can't train, yeah. everything gets a little bit kind of out of out of balance. Yeah. So, I, so I think
1: it's it's our natural it's our natural state. Like we're, we're supposed to exercise. We're not supposed to sit still yeah very yeah.
0: very 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 much so and and i think that is one of the one of the real kind of um problems that we're that we're brewing you know for for this generation and future generations going forwards is that as we move more and more into like a sedentary virtual world where everything is on your device mm. you know deliveroo brings your food amazon brings your shopping and tesco brings you a food shop and you don't even have to leave your couch you know yeah. you can work from home you can have relationships with people via your screen you know got friends you play video games and you're in virtual space with other people and stuff yeah but it but it it neglects like you say you know that natural state for the body which is to go and do difficult shit yeah. That's what your body's designed to do. That's why after you exercise or after you do something physically tough, you feel good.
1: Definitely. You feel
0: better afterwards. You don't have to even quantify it. You just know, oh, great.
1: Well, I mean, like one thing I often say to people who are not exercising and maybe they're into drugs and all that kind of stuff, I say to them, look, I've done most drugs. I've done more or less all of them. And I can honestly tell you, being completely free from drugs and just exercising every day feels better than that. It's yeah. better than drugs, but it's it's,
0: it's better. But it's the it's probably the harder um, it's the harder habit to make, right? You know, it's 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 the better habit to have for sure. Yeah, but the the getting because you know for most people, if you don't exercise and if you don't sort of particularly enjoy it. Man, that, that's a hard six months to make that like a part of your life. You know, right. getting up earlier and eating a bit better and you get up and you, you know, like one of the guys I'm, I'm sure you, you, you're aware of that I, that I follow is uh, David Goggins.
1: Oh yeah, I'm a big fan big, of David everyone's Goggins. Everyone's a big yeah. fan, right? <laughs> but
0: you know, I, was, I, I, I sort of, every time I revisit his same stuff, every six months or so, I get something new from just listening to the same stuff again something that I had missed right and um you know something that he that he, that that I picked up that when recently when I sort of was listening to some of his stuff again there was two things you know because I had I had at one point I had um stress fractures in my shins from playing five a side
1: no oh, I've had those too it's horrible right yeah.
0: <laughs> but then you yeah. know he's one of the things he said just you know it's one little moment he just said you know you wake up and you say this and you say to yourself uh, oh, I can't run today. I've got stress fractures in my shins. Yeah. You haven't got stress fractures. You've got soft fucking legs. Right. Go and run.
1: <laughs> you know, it's
0: like, even that, it's like, just, just, just go. And it's not necessarily like that that's good advice because yeah. maybe you need to heal the bones. Yeah. But it's, it's that kind of like um, mentality of look, you're always going to look for excuses. Yeah. Sometimes you should rest. Sometimes the best thing for you to do is rest. But most times it isn't. Most times, the what you should do is go do that kind of thing that you're putting off or thing that you're putting to the back. And you know, for a lot of people, if you are not in um, a, a routine and a pattern and a mindset of exercising, I mean, that that's the one that you just put to the back. Oh, I didn't sleep well last night. Oh, it's going to be busy at work this week. I oh, yeah. kids are something at school or whatever.
1: You'll always find
0: yeah so it's it's a it's a real hard one for people to um to get into which which maybe is like a like a nice um a nice segue into like the, the this kind of training that you've evolved to do now yeah because you know i think the the thing that um is most helpful let's say when when you're trying to um allow people to, to to start to form these better habits and make exercise or training or fighting or whatever part of their routine that they can stick to
1: mm.
0: is, is efficiency and mm. effectiveness. Because I think a, a lot of times the, the, the thing that maybe turns people off of things or causes people to, to drop out is that you feel like you're not getting the right results. Mm. You're, you're doing stuff and then, you know, like you say, maybe you're, you're going for runs every morning. And then you go to spa and you still got no cardio and you can't understand why. Like yeah. you know, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing the runs. I'm doing this. I'm putting yeah. that. And then I go to fight with this, like you say, this guy who does deadlifts, and he just smokes me for exactly twenty minutes. And I, <laughs> you know, so so so, how did you make that? Um, you know, obviously you said you you do you'd seen the beginning of it with Vince in Thailand. Yeah, but how did you? How what, did with you? With Lawrence, it was Lawrence oh, with no. Lawrence. Yeah, how did you? Um, how did you kind of evolve then more into this current mode of training that you've got?
1: Well, I think that the the injury forced me to be smarter, for sure. But even going back as far as early as when I trained with Lawrence in Beijing and, you know, with, with Vince as well, I think that they were doing things slightly differently. So I kind of had an idea of, resting and you know training trying to balance it out a bit better because when I was in Thailand I actually didn't want to do everything that they told me to in fact in the camps everyone knew me as the guy who would not do what they told me to and that's because although I hadn't really got scientific knowledge at that point I kind of knew stuff from talking to people that did and so I wasn't going to run every day and there was another guy in the camp called Ryan Ryan Dixon actually he he fought in MMA, actually did pretty well. I don't know if he's still active or not. But he was actually quite a smart guy as well in, in the Thai camp. And he also kind of agreed a bit more that we shouldn't run every day. And so we kind of didn't really, um, the, the Thai coaches weren't that happy with us. But we would just go run around the corner and then say that we ran. And we're not the only ones to do that, actually. Because some of the top Thai fighters in Thailand, I'm not going to mention their names. They said they would run 10K every day. They run out the camp. They run a mile down the road, and then they walk, just chill, and then come back. Like, yeah, coach, we just did ten k. So they don't really do ten k every day,
0: mm.
1: you know. Um, I mean, even in the Chinese martial arts school, the same stuff. You would see the kids tell the coach that we're gonna do, we're gonna run up the mountain, and da 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 da. They run out the camp, then they, you know. So they, they didn't all do everything they were told to. So I'd figured, I'd figured out early that you kind of have to know when to rest and when to when to train hard and on my sports science degree, I, I started to really look into that and experiment with different kinds of, of modalities. So during my degree, I had only just about recovered from the injury and at that time I still wanted to fight, but I don't think I had the drive that I had before. The drive wasn't really there and I had actually become very into the sports science. And I actually started coaching at that time as well. I opened the Muay Thai club in in Cheson, not that far from here. So I'm doing the sports science degree and I'm teaching in, in, uh, in Cheson and I'm still training a lot. And now I'm just doing lots of experiments because in, in the back of my mind, I still want to fight. And I'm just trying lots of different things and experimenting and reading literature about different ways of training. And I'm just trying so many different things. And I think that's, slowly over time where i started to figure out the interval training that would work well for me and um also having an understanding of of energy systems as well really helped a lot how the energy systems work how you can train them i think that going into the physiology going deeper into the physiology and understanding that the way we view things we we like people tend to view it as aerobic and anaerobic and that you have to train them separately. And I started to realize that actually at the highest intensities, you you cannot not train your aerobic system. Like a lot of people think I have to do like low intensity stuff for the aerobic, high intensity stuff for the anaerobic. But from a scale of intensity of, you know, low all the way to 100% intensity, your aerobic system is active all the way. So if you train... High intense, just purely by, by definition, aerobic fitness is VO2 max, volume of oxygen consumption. Your VO2 max is at its highest when you're training at the highest intensity. So I started to realize, well, okay, so there's anaerobic. What does anaerobic even mean? People talk about the creatine phosphate system. Well, that actually gets exhausted pretty damn fast. That's within like 10 to 30 seconds. It's gone when you're going at 100% and then you have the lactate system so glycogen in your muscles and your liver gets broken down to create energy fast and lactate is a byproduct of that and hydrogen ions accumulate which is what makes us a lot of people think lactate is what makes your muscles sore. lactate is actually your friend lactate is a byproduct but with the lactate comes hydrogen ions and that creates an acidic environment inside the cell that makes you get exhausted but that's that's the lactate system. That's the predominant system for high intensity stuff that lasts long. Because so, and this is something I learned l- l- trying to trying to understand it. Like, how does it all work? And I started to realize that well, okay, in a five minute MMA round or a five minute jujitsu round or whatever, it's not like you're going at a continuous pace the whole time. You're not. But because you're going quite intense for like ten seconds, and then you only really relax for like maybe two seconds, and then you're going intense again. Energy. You're trying to pull someone down and then you're getting pushed and you're trying to hold them and then you're striking. It's like essentially the creatine system is done very quickly. It's exhausted, you know, so it's mostly lactate. It's mostly muscle glycogen that's going to be used and then massive amounts of oxygen consumption. So how do we train all those things? And a lot of people think you have to separate them like different things for different energy systems. You can do them all in one. You can literally do it all in one. VO2 max, lactate threshold in one like short, high intensity session. It can be done.
0: And so, what 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 does that look like? You know, in practical terms. So, if I if I if I you know start to, start to train with you or you you know join a, a conditioning class or whatever. Yeah. What do you do? you do? Would it be slightly different for different um, fight sports?
1: Yes. Yeah. It would be. It would be because. So here's another really interesting thing is um, efficiency of movement, right? So if, you, if, I took, if I took an elite fighter and an amateur fighter and I gave them exactly the same endurance, the same conditioning, you would still find the elite guy would go for longer than the amateur one because he's more biomechanically efficient. And this is something that you see, like, has a massive effect in things like running, where if if your foot strike is just one percent more efficient than mine, you're going to move a little bit further every time you strike the ground, and essentially you're going to run further and faster with the same amount of power. But it still has a massive effect in fighting, whether it's jujitsu or whatever. Like, if you're wasting energy doing stuff that isn't useful, so that's why I think it's really important to be sport specific because then not only do you get the actual physiological adaptations your mechanics become more efficient as well so if you're doing jiu jitsu for example if you were going to do a jiu jitsu specific energy conditioning stuff you'd want to make it stuff that looks more you know you know applicable to jiu jitsu but it doesn't necessarily have to be you know you don't have to get like a resistance band and practice all your throws of a resistance band it just has to be more specific to that but that that isn't purely the the efficiency that i talked about that's not exactly the only reason you should be efficient Uh, you should be specific because to be honest even if i gave you a non-specific cardio session your endurance like your 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 economy of movement will still be developed when you when you roll you're going to develop your economy of movement there Same in striking, if you spar and you're hitting pads, you're gonna develop economy of movement there. I think the bigger reason why it needs to be specific is because lactate threshold is muscle specific. So do do you know what the lactate threshold is? No. So when you train intensely, you go all out. The reason that you, you start to get exhausted and your intensity decreases is because lactate accumulates in your muscle cells. And then with that, hydrogen increases, and that creates an acidic environment inside your muscle cell and they don't function so well. And so that's when you're going to be exhausted and, you know, intensity drops. So lactate threshold is the point where lactate accumulation exceeds lactate removal, right? Because your your muscles always remove lactate because the glycogen system, it, it has to have a, it has to be, like the glycogen has to be removed because glycogen is, sorry, not the glycogen, the lactate has to be removed. So glycogen is the energy. Glycogen is the energy. It's stored carbohydrate in your muscle and your liver and it gets broken down to glucose. When that system breaks down the glucose to make the energy, it happens so fast. All that lactate starts accumulating. But in order to maintain the intensity, the body also tries to remove the lactate. Because once the, the lactate imp, it accumulates so high, your muscles can't function anymore. Yeah. So there is a lactate removal. The more you train, the better your body is at removing the lactate.
0: But like you say, it's muscle specific. Yes. So if I, do, if I do a lot of like, I'm doing a lot of hill sprints, yeah. my legs become more efficient at removing the lactate, but yes. not necessarily my arms or my shoulders or- core or whatever
1: well the thing is if you like there are central adaptions right so central means the heart and things which are not muscle specific so if you trained lactate threshold like sprinting up a hill would that help your lactate threshold in something like uh, a hand cycle of course it would but not as much as the hand cycle would yeah so i mean just to give you an example like this was one of my early experiments when i was when I got back to the UK and I was doing, um, I was I was doing the degree. I would speak to a lot of boxers. I was training in some boxing gyms and listening to, to boxers, and they said they like sprinting as a as a method to uh, to get good cardio for boxing. So I made a sprint interval training that replicated the time frames of boxing. So it was like three minute round, sprint, rest, sprint, rest, sprint, rest. I was thinking like the sprint that would be like when I'm attacking, and the rest I'm kind of like just bouncing on my toes. That would be the sort of moving around the ring kind of thing. And I did it until I could do this for three three, times three-minute rounds. It was very, very hard, but I got up to that level. And then I thought, okay, I've got this great cardio. Let's go test it. Let's go spar. And I found out that actually I didn't have that great cardio for sparring. And I said, okay, fuck that. We'll do something else. Let's get on the bag now. Here's the timer. For three minutes, every 10 seconds, it's going to beep. So ten seconds, I'm going to hit the bag at a very high intensity, and then ten seconds I'm gonna move and slowly what happened was you know I got better and better at that, and it was the higher volume of punches that I could throw in around, and I went to go and spar, and it was like, "Wow, I'm not getting tired at all.' I throw as many punches as I want." And the same with um same with with grappling and sparring so this this is how specific it is. What i found is when you you get really good at the pads say Muay Thai pads, you can smash elbow, knee, kick for round after round and you're not getting tired. If you do Muay Thai sparring without the clinch, you'll be fine. But as soon as we put the clinch in there, it won't work for you. Because when you clinch, you've got such a high amount of lactate building up in your arms and it wouldn't work. And so I made a new interval, which is we're going to go back and forth from the pad and the pull-up rings. Because the pull-up rings directly replicate that static holding. So we're holding onto the pull-up rings for like 30 seconds, well, 20 seconds, and then we're going back to the bag and smashing. And going back and forth like that. And that has helped a lot. I mean, it helped me to be able to do MMA rounds and it's helped a lot of people that are training with me. So I think it has to be as specific as possible because muscles are.
0: Yeah, you do you have to really try to simulate the 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 actual repetitive movements that are in your fight sport
1: as much as possible yeah so do you do
0: the 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 the, um conditioning rounds that you're doing at the moment do you would you have would you have different um fighters in the same session or you would say this is going to be an mma one so you're going to do a little bit of bag maybe on the rings little bit of whatever yeah and then and then on on other days you would you would have them more specific to guys that are just boxing or guys that are ta well, boxing or
1: those cardio intervals i let them do that whenever is convenient for them you just program
0: okay this is what it looks like you do it when you yeah it well, fits often into I'll, your schedule
1: often i'll be there with them doing it but i don't usually say do it on one specific day a, i mean often we do it on thursday because that kind of works well with the schedule of MMA Dojo. But sometimes they'll do it on a different day if it works for them. Because, of course, every athlete is an individual and they have their own individual schedule. So, you know, if one of them has uh, has work on that day, they might have to... But, yeah, usually I'll, I'll just... I'll do it whenever they're convenient to do it and it will be whatever they're fighting. So if they're fighting Muay Thai, then they'll do something like that. If they're doing MMA, then it will be something more specific to that. I mean, yeah. the way... The way I train fighters is, I usually try to give them as much autonomy as I can because, I mean, with beginner martial artists, when they come into my gym, it's very regimented. Everything is very disciplined and structured and I'll tell them everything, like what to do. As they get to intermediate, then I give them a bit more freedom. And then when they get to advanced, I don't really tell them what to do too much. I mean, they still come in and they drill when everyone else drills and they spar when everyone spars. So they kind of operate within that structure, but they have a lot of freedom within that structure. I never tell them what combos to throw on the pads. You know, I never really, I don't want to dictate too much to them. I don't even, I don't really even tell them what style to have, you know, I just let them spar and see what they they do because everyone's an individual. I don't want to create a kind of like factory that creates one sort of fighter. Yeah. I just want them to be, yeah. you know, to express themselves and I help them with it. Like if, if they've figured out you know if they if they have some problems and they come to me, I'll help them to solve the problems. And if they feel a bit lost, then I'll I'll help them to, you know, find some answers. But I think that it has to be a kind of a more individual thing. It has and, to be more individual.
0: And and in terms of um because I, I think I think with the Thai guys, I, I guess with boxing as well. I mean, they, they fight if if you want to fairly regularly. You could fight. I mean, with jujitsu competitions every weekend. You know, the, yeah. the, the active guys at the club that I'm at, they might fight every weekend. You know, for forty weekends of the year. You know, there's there's as yeah, many competitions as you want. Yeah. But for for so thinking thinking about myself, I mean, I'm I turn fifty in a, in a couple of days. And I'll probably compete like a couple of times a year, maybe three times a year, just trying to manage injuries and everything else. Yeah. But if I have, um, let's say, I'm going to do a comp that's in the summer. Let's say it's the end of June. Yeah. I'm probably going to have um, two or maybe three fights, which are five minute round. That's mm. it. How do you have a sort of um, a, a set idea of what that preparation should look like, how many weeks out I actually go? Okay, this is specific mm. to the end of June being ready at this time. Do you, mm. do you ever do you have a sort of a, a system that you've developed where you say, "Okay, you're going to want six weeks, and the six weeks is going to look like this, and it's going to change like that." Yeah. Or, or do you just kind of go like you say more with how how fighters are feeling? And
1: well, I mean. There is, there is a way that you can get the highest probability that you're going to peak on that day.
0: Yeah, that's what, that's what I was, should have asked you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> how do we, there how is do, a way, we do that? <laughs> there is a way you can do it. And you can do that in an incredibly scientific way or you can do it in a way where you just use your, your feeling you know, which is more practical, really. I mean...
0: Because for the, someone, you know, for someone who's a, who's an amateur, you know, you've got a job, you've got other stuff going on, you know, you yeah. maybe can train four times a week, maybe put an extra session here and there, you know, can't, don't have access to uh, necessarily like a lot of feedback, yeah. you know, and coaching and that kind of thing. Maybe a lot of it, you're you're sort of doing it on your own. So, so I'm, I guess I'm, you know, I'm kind of asking, like, for the for the average guy. Yeah. Do Do, do you have a sort of a broad advice of how you would suggest someone gets ready for get into a comp- the peak for yeah, competition? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: <clears throat> well, I think that with continuous training every week at high intensity, eventually you will start to get quite exhausted. So, how many weeks of that can you do before you hit that exhaustion? Because I've seen, and a lot of, it's not just my experience, but a lot of coaches have, have uh, agreed on this, that if you keep doing high intensity every week, the the performance will increase, it will increase, it will increase, and at some point, it will just go straight down. Because you're just... Like, fatigue it kind of accumulates in the body. And I think... W- it's probably cortisol. I mean, unless you've got the biochemistry, you don't really know, but most likely it's cortisol levels rising and over time it just accumulates. So you would have to do an experiment with yourself to see how many weeks of that can you tolerate before you start to get exhausted. And you've got to take into account life stress as well. Cause if your life, if you have a lot of stress from your job and your relationship and, you know, anything, anything outside of training, that is going to make it happen quicker. So you've got to figure out how many weeks can you manage before you get exhausted. And then it's also important to figure out what kind of level of fitness can you maintain all year round, right? Because, so there are some athletes who actually don't have to peak that much for training camps because their base level of fitness is pretty high. And so if you can maintain your base level of fitness all year round pretty high, you may not need to peak that much for competition. So I can give you an example for for myself. I've figured out that, usually I can tolerate about three weeks of intense training before I need a deload week. And sometimes it might be four weeks, but usually it's about three. And funnily enough, if you look at the original literature from the Russian sports scientists, they had organized all their training into a three-week block as well. So it went one, two, three up, and then four, four down. And that's how a lot of the old Soviet weight training was. So, I think if you could, if you, if you, if throughout the whole year you run on this three week up, one week down schedule as your default, I think your base level of fitness is going to be pretty damn near to competition level anyway.
0: Right.
1: It may well be pretty damn near to it, right? So, so you may not necessary need to do anything more than just do your usual three week one, two, three, and then and then rest the week that, and that, com- that
0: deloading week. Yeah. Would you take out altogether those high intensity sessions and just sort of do a bit of sparring, bit of rolling, bit of whatever? Or would you I mean how what does that deloading look like compared to the three weeks, you know, where you're increasing intensity?
1: Well the D load week would, there's different ways you can do that. And there isn't actually a lot of scientific literature on this. So seeing as there's not that much scientific literature on it, we have to go by what literature we do have and then our own experience. So, Something that I found really useful that I've read in in Westside Barbell Club and you know Louis Simmons the, yeah, yeah. The number one I don't know if they're number one but they're they they were probably are yeah I don't really know about powerlifting so yeah yeah you know but they so what Louis Simmons talked about was in the deload week you should do the stuff that you should leave the stuff in there that drops off the fastest so he said if you find out that your max strength drops really quick, maybe leave the max in there, but take out the volume. Gotcha. If you find out your volume stuff decreases, leave the volume in there, but take out the max. So I don't know how that works for weightlifters, but that kind of idea worked quite well for me. It's either we're going to take out the intensity and keep the volume high, or we're going to massively cut down the volume, but keep intensity high. So I've been doing... In that one that d load week, I would just do one round of the circuit, whereas normally I might do three rounds, I might just do one round and keep the intensity high that because work. because it, uh,
0: a an tie fight would be three 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 minute rounds is it amateur three
1: uh, five three minute rounds five three minutes but but yeah. would you
0: would you build up then to five high intensity training rounds or no three three is enough
1: oh uh, no, you'd want five yeah you would, you would go up to five yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe even more yeah okay.
0: Maybe but then, and then cut to maybe one round on the deload week
1: well maybe more than one ro- round for the deload week um if if you're talking 3 minute rounds yeah i mean i'm just talking cuz i i was doing 5 minute rounds so i was doing 3 5 minute rounds right just as a kind of an experiment but um a lot of a lot of coaches like to do they'll cut the volume by 50% so Whatever it is, just cut it by fifty percent and maintain the intensity. Hmm. That can work. But again, this is this is something that I think everyone has to experiment because everyone's physiology is different. I mean, if you you do your three weeks of training, right, and then there will be a point where you will, at some point, compensate. Right, you're going to be tired. It's a deload week. You're letting your body recover. At some point, your body's going to recover to before what it was in those those weeks how, how long that takes for you for some people it might be five days some people might be a week others might be a bit longer so the only way you're really going to know is by doing your own personal experiments everyone's different if we had all the money and the research you could get some sports scientists to take a blood sample and they could look at biomarkers and they could try and figure out from that, but even that is tricky because biomarkers aren't as simple as as we think. You know, there's so many things that can affect them. Mm. So even that's quite tricky. I think the best way you could do it is just do your own personal experiment. Yeah. And and the same with the deload week as well. I mean, the purpose of the deload week is to reduce the fatigue. So that might be different for everyone. I mean, if you're really fatigued, then you might want to just take the whole week off.
0: And and so if if you come to actually like uh, peaking for a competition, yeah. So within the three week cycle, would that the competition should fall into week number three?
1: Oh, okay. If you're talking about peaking for the competition, yeah, yeah.
0: So say I'm doing three up, one down, three up, one down, and then okay, I say right the last week of June or whatever is is comp. Which week should that be within my cycle?
1: If you were going to do that, I would say the competition maybe would want to be in week five then.
0: So I'll do up week one, up week two, up week three, down week four, yeah, and then comp is at the end of week five yeah during week five or whatever so kind of after the deload week
1: yeah i mean that would be a very generic one yes yeah yeah that would be a generic one like this the deload week the intensity reduces a bit and then in week five you you will compete right okay but that is a very generic one and that's even assuming that you you need to peak because not everyone really needs to peak like some people are just already at the fitness level already so I mean, there's lots of examples where you have fighters take a fight at short notice, right? Many people have heard of that. The guy's not really in a training camp. They're like, oh, do you want to fight this week? Okay, let's go. And they just go, you know. I I can definitely say from what I saw in Thailand that those guys were in condition to fight all the time. Like they didn't really need to peak for a fight. They were just at that conditioning all the time. Yeah. So this kind of like peaking strategy It's a bit difficult. I mean, like everything that I just discussed is a kind of a, in theory, it can work and you would have to do a lot of experimentation to find out your own personal recovery times and it's quite awkward to get it right. I mean, premiership football teams, as far as I know, some of them, they're doing the blood chemistry to really find out who's going to recover at seven days and who's going to recover at five days and it's a lot of work to get that right. But if you could just maintain your fitness at that high level all year round, then you know you're pretty much there.
0: And so I think, I guess, then the most important sort of takeaway from it is what we started with, which is just to include maybe twice a week two sessions of really sport-specific high-intensity training at the correct duration yeah. using the correct movements right. that simulate your fight or your sport you know the muscles that are going to be in use that's that's probably because you know what i wanted from the from these podcasts is always if if people listen through them is that you'll be able to take at least one thing that's actionable right they can just go right great on monday i can i can change this or i can start that or i can stop that yeah so so maybe maybe it, it will be um simply that 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 you should try to to build and then include a couple of times a week those yeah. high intensity correct duration you simulating the movements
1: yeah and that yeah.
0: and that will get you in the the best sort of ongoing condition to perform in your in your sport
1: i think so yeah i think that's for most people that will work the best but again everyone has to experiment with themselves you know yeah that i mean i've been doing that with with people and i've been doing it myself and it seems to work quite well and there's no reason why why you shouldn't be able to keep doing that intensity as long as you've got your deload week. Mind yeah. that's very important. If yeah. you don't have your deload week, you will you will um, you know have a problem. And it's also important that you don't train to absolute exhaustion every time. So when when I say high intensity every week, it do, it doesn't mean like train yourself t- to hell every time, because that that is difficult. I mean. We have high intensity sessions that are hard, and then just before we're getting to that level of exhaustion, we back away. that's gonna make you get stronger you know, and then we also have high intensity where we feel like we're gonna puke so it has to you have to have a little bit of sense you have to listen to your body as long as the general direction is up it doesn't matter if today you did less than the last time it doesn't matter you're not gonna do. There's no way on earth that you're going to improve every time. Like you just do the best you can on the day. Some days you're going to push really hard. Some days not so well. If you keep doing it over months, over years, you're just going to adapt to it. I think that it's possible to have a base level of fitness, which is pretty, pretty high. Yeah. I mean, that's that's surely better than having to peak all the time.
0: For sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe maybe, my, maybe I, I didn't sort of phrase my the question as, as as well as it should be I mean I I agree yeah you should try to maintain
1: yeah
0: at all times a, a level of fitness where you could perform if you need to like you say someone says do you want to do something at the weekend and you don't say like there's no chance yeah you're like okay it might not be perfect for me but I'm I'm 80% there um <coughs> So yeah, but but that that's uh, that, that's 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 interesting. Um because you know going going back, you know when I was younger and I was reading like some of those Russian um weightlifting books, yeah. it was all cycles and wave loading, right? Up a right. bit up a bit and back. And it and it's something that I've I guess over the years I've I've kind of forgotten about. Yeah. So it's really good to refresh it so you can actually consciously program it in like next week is an easy week yeah and then I start again and I have to make sure I'm sleeping a bit better and eating a bit better because I'm gonna have three hard weeks yeah and then I've got an easy week rather than just so I don't feel like training this week or I do feel like training this
1: week schedule it in yeah 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 yeah. because often if you don't schedule that easy week in you're gonna end up doing it anyway yeah because you're gonna get sick or you're gonna get injured there are some people that will argue that you shouldn't schedule it in. They they will say, just do it by feeling.
0: Right. But I guess, again, that yeah. that's, that comes back to what you were saying. The better you know yourself, the more the going by feeling is actually useful as opposed to it's not the best way of doing it. At the beginning, the best way of doing it is programming it in because yeah, you don't so. know, you can't um, assess your own feedback properly, right? Because you I don't have so, the yeah. data
1: base. I, I, I think so. And I mean... Because we're we're talking about high intensity here. I mean, if we're talking about like people who have never trained anything before and, you know, they're just starting doing fitness, often personal trainers just give them programs that last like 10 weeks, right? Like you see it in in the media all the time, like 10 weeks to have good abs or whatever. But that's, you know, we're talking about like when you have no fitness and you're trying to develop. But what you're talking about, I'm assuming with like jujitsu, these people are athletes. So I would yeah. assume that before they start doing these high intensity three week on one week off, I would assume they already have a fairly good yeah. base of fitness. So they would need the deload week. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people who are like total sort of novices at fitness, maybe they can, maybe they can go a bit longer because the intensity isn't necessarily going to be as high. Yeah. I mean, they might they might get away with it. You know, it's the thing about athletes. Like when you're an athlete, you're a lot fitter than everyone else. And that means you can tolerate a lot more training, but it also means the training you do puts a lot more stress on your body.
0: Yeah, I was just going to kind of say that it's was, it was one of the things now. Now that I'm remembering that, that I'm sure I've, I've read a few times is that the the stronger you get and the fitter you get, the less training you're kind of doing and the more rest you need because the intensity, like you say, is so when it's high intensity, the intensity is high. Yeah, you're going deep into the body's kind of systems
1: yeah it makes yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean it's just harder on your body it's harder on your mind
0: yeah so look we're we're just over 90 minutes in is there is there something else that we should have covered um that we haven't or something else that you wanted to to talk about that we haven't talked about
1: um let me see i mean i think what i want to say with training is that like a lot of the stuff that i talk about or that anyone talks about is stuff that you you, you you i've been learning it through experience and i've also been learning it through science but a lot of things are stuff that it is it's not the same for everyone like you have to listen to your body you have to know yourself you know, everyone's individual journey is different. So I think it's very important to be open-minded about this. And I'm always interested to listen to people that have conflicting viewpoints about training. You know, I've, I've had a very long journey through martial art and fitness and strength. And I've done a lot of courses, actually. I've done a lot of personal training courses and then learned a lot of stuff on the degree, a lot of science. And that's been really good but I think that it's the experience that I've had that kind of, it just shows you what is possible. Like a lot of sports scientists, they they don't really, they don't really see the real world stuff. You know, sometimes what you see people doing in real life just completely blows everything out of the water. Like what the scientists say. And we, I, I like research. I've, I would like to see more research. I mean, there's not as much funding in sports science research as there is in stuff like cancer research for an obvious reason. It's not, as important as, you know, finding cures to cancer and figuring out how to get to Mars. So we don't have a lot of research, you know, we really don't have, I mean, some things we know for sure, some things we don't know. So, you know, that's the, the, best, the best scientific research you can do is with yourself. Do experiments, just yeah. do experiments, you know, yeah. see what works, you, your body is a lab. Try something. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, if something worked for someone else, it might work for you or it might not. But, you know, you can experiment with stuff. And I think it does help to have an underlying understanding of principles of physiology and nutrition because these are quite well studied. I mean, the human body, the anatomy, that's quite a simple thing. We've known about that for thousands of years. And then energy systems and cells, biology, physiology, these, these are quite easy to understand. These are quite concrete things. But, you know, what is necessarily the best training methodology for one thing or another? It's, there's not, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know? It's like that. I, I have a way that I like to do things. I know it works very well for me. If people want to come and train with me, then I'm, I'm going to, you know, try to use these methods. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. I think it's just, it's very interesting, you know? to see what people have done and how they got stronger and what they did and what another person did
0: and so uh how do people get in touch with you what's the social media where's the club
1: so uh the social media is mma dojo one on instagram and the club is in east finchley so if anyone wants to come along and train then they can just hit me up via the instagram or uh you know, send me a message. They can find my phone number on there. They can find the website.
0: And what? what's the website?
1: So the website is www.mmadojo.london.
0: MMA dojo. London.
1: Yeah, that's the one. They, if people want to train martial art, they can come and do the basic training because we have basic training. Um, the way I've set it up there is such that The basic training is very regimented. It's very structured. There's a syllabus for everything. So there's a Muay Thai syllabus. I call it Muay Thai, but it's more just striking. It's MMA striking. Because we use striking from all all different backgrounds. That's a syllabus. So one by one, you learn all the basic techniques and all the basic defense. We've done that for wrestling as well, like MMA-specific wrestling. So it has all the basic wrestling that you would find in freestyle wrestling, but also because it's for MMA, we had Muay Thai clinching in there, and then we used the cage, and we have elbows and knees mixed in with the wrestling. <clears throat> and there's currently a, a, a black belt, a, a Roger Gracie black belt in the MMA dojo who's helping me to develop the ground game syllabus for MMA. So the way it works in MMA dojo is we have those syllabuses <clears throat> in the beginning. But once people have gone through that basic training, then it becomes very individualized. And that's what I'm kind of trying to build there is that kind of culture is like when you come in, it's going to be very rigorous, basic training to give you very good foundations in grappling and striking and strength and conditioning. But then once you have all that stuff, then I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be dictating to you what to do. You're a a martial artist, you know, you have to develop your own style. And I think that that's something that I I never liked when I was a fighter that people would always try and tell me what to do when I kind of knew what I was going to do. Fighters are individuals, Mm. you know, so, but that's only when they get to that stage. Like I'd say 70% of people don't even make it through basic training. Right. So, so, you know, you probably wouldn't even get to that stage. I don't really, I don't really pay too much attention to the people in basic training until they've been there a while because I've been in the martial art job for a long time. Most people, they come in three weeks or month, they're gone.
0: Yeah, I mean, my my late gone. old coach uh, Nick Brooks at uh, Mill Hill.
1: I, I trained with him before. Yeah,
0: so yeah. he he whenever um, he used to give someone a blue belt. Yeah, he used to say. always and bear in mind, you know, blue belt from Nick probably you're training for two years, right? Year and a half, you know, three four times a week, regular, a lot of sparring. Yeah, and he always used to say the same thing. He used to he used to take the belt out and he used to say. Tonight, another nobody becomes a somebody. Right. And give the belt. He's it's like, once you get a blue belt, I'll remember your name. Right. Before that, you know, it's kind of pl- playful. It was kind of half-joking. Yeah, it I mean, it, making sounds,
1: it sounds brutal, but it's the truth. I mean, as martial art coaches, we, you see it from our perspective, we have so many people come in they're excited and they're motivated and they talk a lot of shit like yeah I want to be a champion I want to be in the UFC da, da 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 they join and then you know a month later they just give up and we see that like as i said literally like 70% of people they come in and they go and you know it's sometimes it when you've experienced that it just makes you get colder you hmm. just don't care you're like look here's the basic training just get through that once you get through that i'll take you seriously you know And I I love talking to people like in the gym. I'm very talkative. I like to talk to people all the time. And I try to make friends with people as much as I can. And, you know, I like, I always liked coaching in the basic class. We have a good time. But um, at first it made me sad when all these people would come and they're really friendly and they're passionate about the things I'm passionate in. And I felt like, yeah, we're going to be friends. Like you've got something in common with me and they talk a lot of shit and, and then they just disappear. And it made me sad at first it made me really sad but now it's just made me cold it's just made me it's cold
0: that's the, the, the one of the lessons of life right
1: that's it
0: so uh, okay amazing um, MMA Dojo 1 on Instagram that's is, the one is the best right so, yeah. so go and uh, go and follow MMA Dojo 1 on Instagram and um, yeah if you want to if you want to train um, or consult or go check the club everyone's out everyone's welcome yeah you come amazing. and have a go thank you so much for coming in thank you and, I've
1: had a really good time here today
0: really fascinating um conversation and and really um I love to I love to hear people's stories of their travels and how they've sort of you know like I'm a sucker for origin stories yeah. always the martial arts movies the the number one movie is my favorite how they became spider-man how they yeah. became Batman how he became you know so I love I love to hear people's stories of their journeys from starting you know we all start from nothing much and then get into where they are so I'm really grateful I, I, Um, I think
1: that the biggest part about my journey that I should share is um is the humbleness that it's given me because like I mean I didn't really talk about it today but part of the reason that I didn't become a great fighter was because of my own arrogance you know like looking back there's opportunities that I had that I had turned down because of being arrogant and there's a lot of things that didn't go my way, injuries and things like that, you know. But overall it's been the I would say you know me me being a stupid young man and being very arrogant and not really not really respecting people enough and just just thinking that you know I should get paid more than I should or that I should get more than I should. And the whole journey has humbled me a lot, you know. Like it's really humbled me and I think the martial art world humbled me a lot. And I think that's that's a good thing that it can do for everyone. If there's one thing that martial art can do for you, it just, it'll just make you realize that, you know, you're going to get your ass kicked, you're going to get your ass whooped and no one really cares about your problems. Yeah, you know? the,
0: I've, I've I've had this similar conversation, yeah. you know, with so many other, you know, career martial artists Yeah, is that, yeah, you, you're just going to get beat into the mat
1: in in yeah I mean, in life as well you know yeah, life you, is gonna beat the shit out you, of you and
0: you choose whether to come back on Tuesday or not.
1: Well this is it, it you know this is it like life is gonna beat you down martial art is gonna beat you down and you know if you you're humble you know you just you just learn to take it on the chin and uh, I'm just grateful for everything that I've got you know I mean when I was young I wanted to be a superstar I wanted to be a great fighter but I was too arrogant and I was too stupid. And what the whole experience has taught me is like, you know, you're just you're just a human being like everyone else, you know, and everything is earned in this world. Like nothing is given. You have to fight for everything. And no one has to respect you. You know, no one has to respect you. No one. You're not entitled to anything. The world doesn't owe you shit. And I think that, you know, I'm so grateful that martial art has given me that it's given me that realisation that, and I'm so grateful that the journey I'm able to teach people stuff you know it's I'm very lucky really I'm blessed in a lot of ways beautiful I'm just blessed in a lot of ways so so. if you
0: want to if you want to share in that in those blessings MMA Dojo 1 on Instagram and uh, follow the podcast White Basement Pod and um, share it send it out send us some love give us some uh, feedback some engagement some comments and we'll catch you next time if you don't deserve my love you won't get it, no credit me for once some regret i said it feelings and emotions
1: I can shed it re-edit I'm running from my boss every leg the pel I'm running round my brain trying to find the nearest exit this being the higher but I'm killing off the Senate who my lap movie put up just on the credits in hindsight